It is great to see you today. I'm Dan Meyer, uh, one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and it is marvelous to have you in the middle of um, the life of this church today. And whether you're just walking in for the very first time or you're finding yourself back to that familiar, comfortable seat that's got your rear end impression in it, uh, we're just really glad you're here and uh, hope that uh, this morning's investment in this time together will be really useful all week long for you as you head out into uh, life. We're in the midst of a four-part series uh, looking at one of the most familiar stories of the Bible and unpacking that, that story in a fresh way. Uh, we're looking at what we're calling the seasons of the soul this month. We're looking at these periods uh, or movements of ourselves that God invites us to make uh, and which some of us often struggle to make, understandably, um, in order that we might have a life that is even more flourishing than the life we have now and that our influence on the other people in our lives uh, will be even more creative and positive. And uh, if you were with us last week, then you know that we opened up the, the conversation by talking about uh, this family that we're studying in this uh, storyline. And uh, the, the, the story of the prodigal son, as it has been called by tradition, probably one of the most famous narratives in all of the Bible and in, in, indeed in human culture itself, uh, is, is a, a story that has a major idea that has to do with God's desire to find us in our lostness. And lostness takes several different forms. We'll come back to that theme again next week. That's the big idea of the story. It's trying to show us our condition and the heart of God for, for us. And, uh, but we've also noticed that in the context of the storyline of the prodigal son, we're, we're given a window into these key movements that God calls us to make at various uh, uh, moments in our life. And uh, we saw last week portrayed the very vivid uh, image of release, the movement of releasing things and people uh, that is so important uh, as a part of our own journey towards greater wholeness. Uh, but listen to me, with me, if you would, to the word of God as I bring us back to the storyline in Luke chapter 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. Now, as we explored last week, and I hope if you weren't with us last week, go back online and catch the first installment in this story because I think you will find it very personally relevant. But as we looked at that uh, story, um, we see the dad in the tale making one of the most difficult and important movements that any of us could ever make and which, frankly, some of us are still struggling to make. And that is that at great personal cost, we see him releasing his grip on someone he loves, namely his son, and on something he's reasonably fond of too, namely a significant portion of his, his estate, and he watches them right down the driveway, off into the distance, over the hill, and out of sight. And that's the image that we see. It's how we ended the, the story as we explored it last week. And what unfolds from this point on is a narrative in which Jesus gives us a glimpse of three crucial states of consciousness, or what I'm going to call stages of awareness, that... Um, are revealed in the life of this traveling son, which may actually also give us a window into our condition. 
may show us something uncomfortable about our lives. And if it just gets too uncomfortable for you, then just nudge your neighbor and say, this is probably a message for you, not for me. <laughs> just, that'll work. Yeah, that, that's, that's a strategy. So um, the first stage of awareness that we see in the life of this character, this son that's traveling now, is what I'm going to simply call blindness for reasons that will become clear. Jesus says, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. I want you to say that word with me, squandered. Isn't that a great word? Try and use it three or four times this week if you get a chance, squandered. I looked it up, and, and the dictionary definition of squandered uh, is, is, to, is the act of wasting something, especially time or money, in a reckless manner or a foolish manner. And what's interesting about this part of the story is that the son in the tale is a wealthy person at this point. Uh, actually, he is more wealthy than he even knows, but he is blind, actually, to the full extent of the wealth or the real source of the wealth that he has in his life. And at this point, he thinks that his wealth is the cash that he is carrying with him from having converted a third of his father's property, property uh, into um, liquid assets. Uh, actually, he's going to turn them into liquid assets fairly shortly, we discover. And so um, the kid goes off, we're told, and squandered his wealth. Now, does he think he's squandering it? Does he think of himself as acting in a reckless and foolish manner? No, he does not think that way, probably, about himself. Why? He's blind. He's in the stage of, of awareness that we call uh, blindness. Uh, and, and we know that because he is not just wasting the money. He's not just burning through the cash. He's doing it in what the text calls wild living. Wild living. Now, that's a, a familiar phrase in our time. It just suggests a really good party to a lot of us. But in actuality, the original Greek language that, that, uh, through which the story was uh, passed on uh, in the first century uh, suggests something more to it than that. Because the language there probably more literally would be translated as incurable illness. Literally. That's what it's saying. He, he squandered his wealth like an incurably ill person, like somebody who was heading for death, like somebody who, had, had, who thought there was no real tomorrow. I'm doing it right now. Uh, this is the way the guy is spending his money. And, and in other words, what we're getting a picture of is somebody who's doing more than just simple pleasure-seeking. Who of us hasn't done that? Um, but is actually engaged in some pretty self-destructive, almost hopeless kind of behavior. And it's important to understand that distinction because we sometimes get confused about how God feels about human beings. We sometimes get pictures of God as somebody whose really big concern is to overcome our desire to keep seeking pleasure. God is some kind of a, a, a cosmic killjoy, a celestial Grinch, who is severely irritated by this human capacity to always want to be out there having fun, finding pleasure, adventuring. Some people have kind of an image of God as bugged by those things. That is not true. That is definitely 
not true. We know that from the rest of the stories of the Bible. So often we're given a picture of God that's so very, very different than that. Uh, Jesus himself said, I have, told, I have come in order that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, I have told you and taught you all these things that I'm teaching you, he says to his disciples, so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. There is not a snowball's chance in a very warm place that, that, that fishermen, ordinary fishermen, I, was, I told you last week I was on a uh, trip to uh, the Keys last uh, Christmas, and, and what I didn't tell you about it was that I went fishing, and I caught a 300-pound lemon shark. It took me 35 minutes to wrestle that baby up to the boat. And, and the fisherman, the, the fishing guide we had, was about as fun a guy as he, this is a take no prisoners, we are catching fish and barracudas and sharks and all kinds of fish that we were, we were able to end up uh, eating. Uh, there's no way a guy like that is gonna hang around with Jesus if Jesus isn't fun. There's no way that publicans, we're told that Jesus was, was followed by publicans. You know what publican is? It's not a Republican, it's a bartender. There's no way that Jesus is attracting the attention of ordinary people if it wasn't a joyful experience being in the company of Jesus. He was not a prude. So God, it's very important to know this, does not mind us seeking pleasure. What he gets concerned about is when the chasing after pleasure leads us into self-destructive behavior or other destructive behavior in wild living in that sense. I, when I was a young man, I know it's hard to believe, I used to be, uh, and I was out there you know, sowing my wild oats and carrying on, it hardly ever occurred to me that I was hurting anybody by what I was doing. Uh, it, it just, I was blind to it, basically. I had no idea that my parents were maybe injured by what I was doing or that other people were being affected. It never occurred to me I was hurting myself, except maybe after a particularly bad you know, night out. The next morning, I might be feeling differently. But, but the reality was I actually was doing some damage. I was really, on some level, hurting myself. And very, very often, the people that I was interacting with weren't faring as well because of my, uh, my bad judgment about so many different things. Uh, I was, in effect, um, making decisions that were acting kind of like a deli slicer on my soul. You know? Each slice was, it hurt a little bit, but it was never big enough that you really noticed it. And yet over time, if you look back, you realize that, I, that, that who I was becoming was, was not that healthy. And, and the effect I was having on other people uh, closest to me was not all that, that healthy as well. Um, the Bible suggests that the basic human condition is, is a spiritual blindness that is really hard for us to even appreciate we have. The, the, the contention the scriptures make is that most of us live in a state of, um, of selfishness, like the younger brother in the story, or we are appallingly self-righteous, like the elder brother that we learn about later in the story, but, or, or in my case, I'm both, you know, just pick the day of the week, I'm gonna be selfish here today and self-righteous tomorrow. Um, most of us are in this condition, but it is so familiar to us, we've gotten so good at rationalizing it, 
that we're basically blind to the extent to which it's slicing up our soul and hurting other people. Uh, We've got barely a clue about what's driving us, what's behind these selfish actions and ways of moving through through the world. Uh, What's really making this happen for us? Um, and, And so ultimately... We just kind of go through life. We, we're kind of like the younger child here. We're, we set off for the distant country. We're, we're on a mission, most of us, most of the time. Uh, you just see the pace that we move through life these days. Uh, we're, just, we're just driving towards the distant country. And the distant country, in this sense, is, is that place out there someplace, maybe over the next hill, where, where the things that, that we are impassioned to, to have happen for ourselves will finally be realized. Our dreams and our desires will all come true. And, and, and for us, it's different. It depends on who we are, how we're wired, what our, really, our real driver is. For some of us, it's the drive to be perfect. It's the drive to get everything organized correctly, to get it right. For others of us, it's, it's a passion to be lovable, to have other people just going, you're such a nice person. Uh, for others of us, it's this drive to be seen as an achiever and as, as a competent person and to get the, the pats on the back for the incredibly good job we've done. For others of us, it's, a, it's all about being special. We are all, we, we spend a lot of time in the mirror making sure this is just right, you know, the Mr. Rogers uh, cardigan is looking really good, you know. Maybe if I suck in the gut a little bit, I'll be better. Some of us, that are, it, we want to be seen as unique. You know, the, our worst nightmare is walking in and finding out that somebody is wearing the same clothes or they just got the same haircut, and it bugs us because we want to be special. Uh, other people will march along through life trying to master knowledge. They're just they're information junkies because they have a sense that if they just get enough info, enough data, they're going to get it all sorted out and they're going to have control over things in, in a better uh, kind of way. Others, um, the big drive is security. They're just trying to feel safe uh, and, and they're, they're guarding themselves in all kinds of ways. And then there are just people that love to have a great time, you know? They're just looking for another chance to find a party, to celebrate, and that's the big driver of life. And then I, I've known people who, who, whose drive wherever they go is all about um, preventing people from taking advantage of them. That's their driver. Uh, they see the world as a threat, and they're just trying to make sure that doesn't happen. And there's still other people who are just all about making it peaceful. And they're anxious all the time until they can get everything. If everybody just settled down, everything's going to be okay. That's the big driver. They want harmony. Um, can you recognize yourself in any of those characterizations? Uh, can you find, can, how about the person next to you? And this is the time to look at them. <laughs> you know, can you see that driver in, in anybody? Uh, it's different for different ones of us. And I want to just really underline, none of those drivers is bad in and of themselves. Uh, They're not. These these impulses uh, can be very, very good in some ways. The problem is when those drives balloon up till they dominate our way of being and seeing more than we know, and they become what the Christian spiritual tradition calls a false self. A false self. That means a self that derives its meaning and and sense of satisfaction um, not from our identity as children of the beloved children of the Father, uh, but from the way our actions 
produce certain kinds of effects in the environment. Uh, that's what a false self um, is. It's a self that's defined by our appetites and our anxieties, our fears, our angers, rather than by our true identity as a beloved child of the Father. And very often, when we're thick in the middle of those drives, we are totally blind to it, as I'll illustrate in a minute. We are totally blind to it. So when we meet him in the distant country, in the storyline here, the younger son in Christ's parable is way into his false self. He is in full-on party mode. And then we're told here, but after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. Did he see the famine coming? Nope, because he would have been saving if he'd seen the famine coming. Uh, Did he expect that his money would run out? Nope, that's why he just kept on spending it. Would he, um, did he um, expect that the time of famine would go on so long that he'd be in serious trouble? Nope, because he gets into serious trouble. Why? Because the first stage of consciousness is what? Blindness. It's blindness. Uh, so now I'm allegorizing, allegorizing this story a little bit here, right? Because we're talking, I'm talking about the distant country in a somewhat metaphorical way. I'm talking about uh, uh, his vision in a metaphorical way, his self in a metaphorical way. But I think these are such consistent biblical themes that it's worth focusing on. I am sure that a major biblical principle is that if your wealth lies in what your false self craves, then you are going to really have a hard time when the famine strikes. And I'm using that again in an, in an allegorical way, the idea of famine, right? If these are your drivers, and I think we've got a, a chart on this, um, if these are your drivers in life, to, to have these particular kinds of things going, for, going your way, then when the, the conditions arise that no longer allow you to have those things that feed the false self, um, it's going to put you into a tremendous state of, of disorientation. If, like the son in the story, your wealth lies in your ability to be extravagant and popular and the host of the great party, who are you? When the money runs out, when you lose your job, when you, 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 you have to sell your home and you can no longer afford the, the country club, who are you now if yourself was being that person? If you're like the elder brother that we meet later on in the tale, uh, if your wealth lies in being such a perfectly obedient rule follower, um, then who are you when all of a sudden all this attention is being lavished on these rule breakers? It just totally disorients you, and you don't even know who you are anymore in in those moments, as we see later in the story. I want to suggest to you that it is hard when the famine comes, but it's not all bad. It's not all bad when the stuff that feeds the false self runs out, because it creates this incredible moment of opportunity to, to reorient ourselves Uh, It tests who we really are, what we think our wealth and self truly is. And and my experience is also that usually when famine comes, uh, especially early on in our spiritual journey, we have a tendency to move not to sudden, humble enlightenment, but to the next stage of consciousness, which I will simply call denial. 
denial. Um, there's a tendency when, we're, when the false self is being transfer, uh, challenged by circumstances to double down on the false self, uh, to, to really commit in a deeper way to that, to that false self. Um, so we see this uh, going on, I think, in the story here. Uh, because the scriptures say that Jesus says that there was a famine in the whole country, and I love this line, and he began to be in need. He began to be in need. Seriously, he began to be in need. He's just figuring this out, that he's on a bad track. Um, I think it's, a, it's the humor of Jesus here, or I think he's giving us the perspective of the, uh, of the younger son in the story when he says that, because truthfully, we know this kid has been in trouble for a really long time. He has ravished his father's heart and his family's estate. He has divorced himself completely from his family of origin. He has spent his entire inheritance in self-destructive ways. We learn later he has been running around with prostitutes, and who knows what issues Issues have developed from that experience, and he still appears to be in total denial about both his condition and its potential solution. But be patient, because it gets worse. It gets worse. So he went, and if you watch Breaking Bad, you know, it just gets worse and worse. That, that's the story of this guy, right? So he goes and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, Jesus says, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Wow, there is a universe of meaning in just those few lines. Okay, this detail confirms just how far this kid has wandered from home. Uh, because apparently he's gone to a place where pig-keeping is common. That would be like nowhere near his home. That is truly a distant country. That would be like nowhere uh, in Jewish land is this going on. Because the Jews regarded pigs as completely non-kosher, meaning impure. The Talmud, which is the central uh, theological reference work next to the Bible uh, for the Jewish people, the Jewish rabbis, the Talmud says this, cursed be the man who would breed swine. Curses on people that keep pigs. As a Jew, you didn't raise pigs, you didn't feed pigs, you didn't eat pigs, you didn't eat what pigs ate, you didn't date people that did, okay? That pig's bad in the Jewish mindset. Uh, filthy, dirty, awful. So what Jesus is giving us in this part of the narrative is this incredibly vivid picture of somebody who has wandered so far from their true self and so far from their actual uh, identity and so far from their uh, genuine wealth uh, that it's not possible to go any further out than they have gone. By saying that he was looking to feed himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, he is saying, Jesus is saying that this guy has given up his humanity. Because I'll tell you what, the pods were indigestible. The pods that people fed to pigs, you couldn't digest as a human being. And here he is, hungering for the very thing that can't feed him. And that's how it is. Again, metaphorically speaking, with the false self. Is we keep hungering for the thing that actually can't feed the true self, can't give us what we want, can't give us the satisfaction we desire. And this is what this guy is, is doing. But then it goes on and it really tells us that no one else gave him anything 
either. So the text is saying there that the locals regard him as less than a pig. They are more committed to feeding their pigs than they are to taking care of this guy. He has hit absolute rock bottom. It is a terrible, terrible time of famine in every conceivable sense. So you know what else isn't kosher? A lot of food I discovered, the whole list of foods that aren't kosher. And one of the foods on the list of non-kosher food is shrimp. Crustaceans aren't uh, kosher. And it made me think of this fight that I had with my wife some time ago. Uh, and, uh, and it was over shrimp. And some of you, some of you have actually heard the story, but um, I, I was heading outside to barbecue some shrimp, and my wife Amy warned me to be really careful to keep an eye on the shrimp because I often burned it, she said. This was, a, this was an assault on my manhood, okay? You are challenging the competency of my barbecuing skills. You know, this was, this was hard. I'm not going to burn it, I snapped back at her in the moment. I'm not going to do that. And a few minutes later, I, I go back out to check on the shrimp, and some evil spirit <laughs> had lit a grease fire in that little pan underneath the, the Weber barbecue, and it was an inferno. So a few moments later, I walk back into the house with a platter of these charcoal crustaceans. <laughs> and my wife says, you burned the shrimp, didn't you? <laughs> Not a good moment. Not a good moment. And I just, I came immediately back at her. I flooded it with all kinds of defensive anger. I explained, this is totally not my fault. It's the barbecue's fault. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just raging back. And she comes back at me, and I come back at her, and it starts to get ugly in the way that some of you understand marriages can sometimes get. And, you know, I'm thinking about sleeping on the couch, and then I've got a thought, no, I can't let the sun go down on my anger. I still need to set her right. <laughs> And I interact with her again, you know, and it's going, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, now I think I really have a good, my rationalizations are ratcheting up, I'm getting more articulate. And she says very calmly to me, Dan, what is it do you suppose about you that doesn't allow yourself to simply admit you made a mistake? And in a nanosecond, I went from being 100% certain I was right, she was wrong, to being 100% clear that I was wrong and she was right about me. And it wasn't just the shrimp. I could start to see for a moment of insight, my eyes opened. I shifted from blindness and denial to realization. I could suddenly see a bunch of areas in my life where I always had this need to be competent, to be seen as having it together, being able to do it right, organizing it well, and, and being applauded for my various shrimp production, you know, in the different spheres of my life. It was just an incredible moment of, of revelation for me. I, I grew up um, believing, you know, I think my, my experience in, in life, I, it's not my parents' fault, that's just the way it happened for me. I just grew up believing that that my worth was very much tied to what I could produce, how well I could do things, the grades I got, all of that, that stuff. 
And uh, it was not, of course, what others were requiring, literally. It was certainly not what God needed from me, uh, that I'd be like this. Uh, but it was my false self at work. And my false self, you know, at times just blazed hotter than a towering barbecue. You know, it just it would be that hot for me. And the amazing thing that it struck me is I, I've lived so much of my life kind of blind to the power of that false self in me, to how much of it runs me uh, around at times. And when the moment of realization came for me, it was painful, but it was also profoundly freeing because it, it sort of made me want to find a better sense and source uh, of self. And so I bring this part of myself before God in prayer a lot. I need to. Um, just asking him to free me from being tied to it so much, to being this performer, this achiever, and uh, allow myself to make mistakes and, um, and, and, and be free with others in that way as well. Uh, to remember that my identity and my worth lies in his love uh, and frankly the love of Amy and other great people in my life more than it lies in the stuff I do. Um, so as I told you, this is going to be irrelevant for you. I'm sure this has no application in your life. But, but as we go on in the story, Jesus says that while the younger son was still stinking of unkosher food, he came to his senses. Uh, he came to his senses. Some translations say he came to himself. He came to himself as if acknowledging he'd been living this false self life and he now begins to recover a sense of his true identity. I like the other translation just as much though because in that idea of senses is something valuable. There's a pastor in Wisconsin by the name of Brent Juliet who says that it's as if prior to this revelation that we have at times, our sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell have ceased to function. We've no awareness of how foolish we've been, how lost we are, how hopeless it is, or the injury we're doing to ourselves or other people in our senseless way of living. And that gets us into a lot of trouble in life, more than we know. People see it in us, we don't see it in ourselves. And then finally, suddenly sometimes, the famine hits, uh, the thing that's been feeding our false self is pulled away, and, and we have this opportunity to have our eyes open, and we suddenly can see that's the first of the senses. We can see. And then we hear the grunting of the pigs and we touch their skin and we taste the dirt in our mouths and we smell the stench of our condition and we realize how selfish we have been or how self-righteous we have been. And it's like burning shrimp and we realize that not only have we been doing wrong, something about us is wrong. Not just cosmetically, but something at the core needs fixing, needs repair, as we'll talk about next week. So I wish I could say that experiencing the full force of famine or the, the, the full consequences of one's false self is always going to bring people to their senses. But the story does go on and describe the reaction of the elder brother later on who also is given this invitation by the father in this case, you should go read the story, Luke chapter 15, later verses, given an opportunity to see that he too has been living in this incredible state of grace, but he can't see it. He's still stuck in his self-righteousness. Uh, sometimes we just double down on denial. We double down on blindness. But here, amazingly, 
we see this young man, the younger brother, suddenly making the realization uh, uh, that he had been living in a place of grace that he'd just totally taken for granted. And he makes this realization that moves him to, to an act of trying to repair the relationship and then eventually to an act on the part of the father that restores his condition. And there in that uh, pig pen, he says, I will set out and go back to my father. Do you know that you can too? Do you know that there is no country so distant you can go to where it is not still possible to go back home to the Father who loves you, to the Heavenly Father who cares for you. It's never too late to rediscover the true self. And so we're going to be coming to the table today. Um, and I'm hoping and praying that for some of us, this is going to be a moment of starting to come to our senses. We're going to let the act, this very tangible sensory thing we're going to do at a, in communion, activate our senses and our, ourselves in a fresh way. And, and I invite you to, as you celebrate the sacrament today, to be thinking to yourself, what, what's the realization God may be calling me to make about myself? Uh, what's, what about my character are the current circumstances of my life uh, revealing? If you're under stress, if you're feeling pressure, if there's some issue, it's a clue. It's famine. It's, it's, it's starving in some way the false self in you. So figure out what that is. What do you need to open up and turn over to God? What's the driver of the false self uh, in you? What have others perhaps been trying your whole life to try and show to you about yourself so it could get healed? What would Jesus want you to be praying for the power to recognize and to leave behind as you come to this place where his sacrifice represented at this table, the gift of his very life upon the cross, shows you and me the depths of the Father's love for us and his passion to see us come home. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that there can be no springtime until somewhere beneath the winter ground, a seed cracks open and begins to grow toward the light. And so, God, break us open and grow us toward that light. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, that the sharing of the bread that we break and the cup that we bless may be for us an actual communion with you a communion with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And grant that being joined together in the worship of you today, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up into the full character of Christ, becoming his witnesses in all the world. For this we pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.